Fulhamish is back for the season by Ladbrokes. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fulhamish podcast. My name is Sammy James. We are your independent voice of Fulham FC. Hope you're all good. Today we're going to be discussing Saturday's big defeat, slightly inevitable defeat to Man United at Craven Cottage and discussing all the ramifications from it. I'm joined by two fellas in the studio, potentially going to be a third one if Farrell ever decides to turn up. But for now, uh, a man who's in an awkward love triangle between Y Scout and Opta just ahead of this Valentine's Day. It's George Singer. Hello, hello. And Claudia Ranieri's personal travel agent, Jack Collins. <laughs> Thank you very much. Lovely. Where is Claudio right now, Jack? Claudio's in Rome. He's in Rome. He has not returned from Rome. And do you know where he's eating tonight? Which restaurant he's off to? What part of the city is he staying in? He seems to have... I, I put the tracker in his coat and he seems to have put it down as soon as he got to the Eternal City. So I, I think we've lost him for now. But uh, in the meantime, we'll uh, discuss how poor his team performed. Well, um, you get some three-word reviews uh, up in a second. Just to say this season, Fulhamish is backed by Labrooks. For exclusive specials and promotions, head to bets.fulhamish.co.uk. Uh, if you don't know what we were just talking about, then check out Jack's Twitter. He was uh, very ITK on Claudio's exact movements post-Man United. So, um, Jack, what came in on the old three WRs? I quite liked a lot of these. John Witham's Claudio experiment over, which was pretty you know, damning, I suppose. LB number 11, FFC, play the kids. Richard Bamba, Sol Bamba, ding dong down. Uh, which I which always <laughs> That's got to be a pod name contender, that. Tom Great Rex with Ranieri Saurus facing extinction. M- Michael B with Mission Impossible nearly. And Greg Margolis with Red Dead Damnation. Oh, very nice. There's definitely a couple of pod name contenders in there. Some contenders. Some contenders. So uh, let's get into the crux of the issue, which was Saturday's game uh, against United. I mean, there was just, George, for me, a feeling of inevitability walking to the cottage. Uh, The interesting thing, though, was seeing the lineup. Uh, We called for the back five to go. Ranieri responded. My instant thought was, why didn't you try this a week earlier at Selhurst Park rather than against a red-hot form team in Europe, Man United? No pun intended. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... We we had been calling it for so long and I think the... And we'll come on to it in a bit. The counter-attacking prowess of, of Man United, the speed they have on the break. You know, of all the games, although we were all calling out for it, of all the games to finally go to the back four, this wasn't didn't really feel like the one. I mean... Obviously, we moved to the back five halfway through, well, just into the second half. And, you know, we'll discuss that more later. But without that real protection in front of Rico, we definitely struggled when they were on the counter. I mean, the last time that Dennis Adoy played at right back was against Man United. He got torn an absolute new one. So Claudio Ranieri thought it would be a wise idea again to move Dennis Adoy back to right back against Man United. Uh, And guess what? Uh... He got tore a new one. What's the definition of madness? Yeah, doing the same thing twice and expecting different results. I, I do get it. I thought that the back four, you know, obviously defensively we were quite poor, but in terms of system, was all right. We, we did okay. We got beaten by two, you know, up to 2-0. We got undone by two actual pieces of individual brilliance. Yes, there are defensive mistakes in there. And yes, you know, I'm not trying to downplay that but we got beaten by an unbelievable Martial run and a, an incredible finish from Pogba from a really tight angle and yes he's lost his man and yes Le Marchand should win the ball and yes Seri shouldn't go flying into the tackle all of those things 
But Pogba scores from an unbelievable angle, and, and you know, in the same in the same kind of way, Martial's run should he be stopped? Absolutely, and and someone should foul him. But at the same time, he's just run from the halfway line and beating the keeper. You, you've got to at some point give credit to really good players doing good things, and I think that. It was so obvious when we switched, and I know we'll go into it in, in deeper, away from the four at the back and, and four across the midfield, how much time they had to play the ball around to completely dominate the ball. And they hadn't had that up to that point. They'd been better than us, sure, fine. But we were being beaten by individuals being better man for man rather than because we didn't have a clue how to combat their system. And we did have two very good chances early on before... Paul Pogba scored in the 14th minute and the first one and I think the best chance fell to Vieto it was actually a really good run and move from Schürrle picked out Vieto perfectly at the back post because that was not an easy cross it was had to put it on a sixpence really and I was I remember thinking at the time when Vieto kind of dragged that wide I remember thinking we're going to look back at this game and on Monday night I'm going to be sat in that podcast studio thinking what if Vieto tucks that away it's always the way, you know. You, you'll never know, but it could have been such a, a different, a different game if we did get the lead early on, and maybe we could have sat back a bit and, and defended, maybe. But I think what I really liked about that, and you know, one one of the reasons we wanted to move away from the back five was to get more creativity, get more, you know, of those advanced midfielders in, and that attack was, I think, Babel forward to Scherler who ran forward and then crossed to Vieto. And, you know, 90% of our attacks go to Mitrovic and it was actually a bit refreshing to see something coming through some other players. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough finish and it was a, it was a well-worked move. But yeah, if that went in, it could have been a, a very different kind of complexity to the game. And I arguably think Mitrovic could have done a lot better with that header. It, he gets his head to it. I think he beats Smalling, all ends up. And if he just heads it in the right direction, I don't think David De Gea has a chance. I'm not really knocking Mitrovic because he did so well to get to the header it's just a shame that it came off the wrong part of his head yeah and, and he's obviously being held as well which doesn't help you know it's potentially a penalty in some in some cases and I think that you know it's one of those ones where if it got given against us we'd be furious but having seen it the opposite way I think it might be a penalty yes Mitrovic maybe should do a little bit better it is a in terms of how it looks from from the replays, but ultimately you've just got to accept that not everything that hits his head is going to go in, and and he does really well to to earn himself the position, and ultimately it does cost cost us. But I definitely wouldn't lay that at his door. Let's move on to Pogba's goal, and it kind of killed off any Fulham resistance, and I think it was pretty clear from that moment that Fulham were not going to get anything out of the game. Now, Rico has been a a bright light in an otherwise pretty dark season for Fulham, and and ever since his inclusion instead of Marcus Bettinelli, who, by the way, has suddenly had to have an operation, and that's all been dealt with quite quietly by the club. I've not heard this, so you're going to have to expand. Yeah, he's, he's, um, he's... out for the rest of the season so Fabry was on the bench on Saturday Fabry's been on the bench for a while but I just assumed that was him being dropped no yeah Marks Bettinelli has gone for surgery of of some sort and I know that the details are out there as to what part of his body it is but um, yeah anyway Rico's come in done a good job I kind of digressed there but it's been a couple of shaky moments for me in the past few weeks I think Spurs I think he was potentially culpable for one, if not both, goals in that game, and then that goal where he lets in it, lets it in from Pogba. 
I just think it's poor positioning in, in the first instance. And I think it's inevitable, though, for me, when a defence is giving away so many shots that occasionally he's going to make mistakes. I'm sure David De Gea would make mistakes as well if he had such a hopeless back four in front of him. Yeah, so I think before we go into Rico's position, there's a couple of bits probably to say. So firstly, I thought we were actually okay in the first half. Um, I mentioned on the, uh, I think the, the halftime WhatsApp, you know, I thought we were doing okay actually. Um, we were controlling the game pretty well. I thought we had uh, probably over half of the possession um, and and like you said, it, it did feel like a couple of, of moments of brilliance that really outdone us. Um, although if you look look at the goal and look at the the build up to the play, Lamarchand runs out of defence for seemingly no reason to mm. then go and lose a tackle. And if you watch Chambers, who's obviously kind of a, a bit of a makeshift CDM, he sort of looks, sees the gap, sees where Lamarchand should be, and kind of slowly isn't really sure if he could go if he should go back into that space. And he slowly kind of dawdles a bit. And as soon as he's finally back in that centre-back place where Lamarchand's kind of left, that's exactly where Pogba runs. And that's where Pogba gets literally half a yard of space. And that's all the guy needs. His his finish was incredible. And I, I think it would it would be harsh to put too much of the blame on Rico because before he's even set himself, the ball's gone behind him. He's hit so hard from such an angle. It's, it's a masterful finish and I think it would be be quite harsh to put the blame on Rico for that one. And you've also maybe got to call out Joe Bryan for not stepping up with the rest of the defence. And that is potentially what Chambers is thinking in that situation because he's thinking, well, Pogba's offside. And you can see him raise his hand. He thinks he's he thinks he's got him. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's a risky strategy anyway. It is with the with the speed of United's players. I think that's one of the major gripes I had with the the whole game, and I guess Ranieri's tenure of going between the back five and the back four, different midfields. You know, none of them seem to know who should be where. None of them seem to know if they're coming or going, if they're moving up forward or if they're pushing back. So many times we got caught out with our wing backs have flown forward, and all we had left back were our two centre backs. And mm. with the second goal, that's exactly what happened. Adoy had chase on forward like he always does. Schurler giving no defensive cover at all, like he always does. There was one pass from, I think, Phil Jones forward to Martial. And before you know it, he was just running at Lamarchon. And yeah, I mean, Lamarchon could do a lot better with his tackle. It was a bit of a, a poor attempt to try and get the ball off him. But he had absolutely no support there. And players of United's quality don't need a second opportunity to put the ball away. It is repeat, though, for me, with the Lamarchon failed tackle of sometimes our players just being a bit nice. Yeah, yeah, it's very much that. And and also, you're just screaming at Adoy, just just take him down, take the booking. Just take the booking, just haul him down from behind. And then Lamarchon lets him skip over his leg, take the booking there as well. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, the chance of them scoring from, from actually that position are reasonably high because they have really good free kick takers. But that's not the point. The point is that in any other game, you should take that player out as well because it's always better to just take that and, and not worry. But you can see that they're concerned about cards. You can, can see that they're kind of... There's that kind of fear of, of you know, Dennis Adoy getting on a booking with Martial running at him for the rest of the game. You can see in his eyes. And there was there was such fear from every time Martial touched the ball on Saturday. And I think that's kind of it. We, we knew how good he was. And, and I often ask players, when I speak to them, you say, do you, you do fear anyone when they come running at you? Or do you, and you hear lots of like centre-backs saying, I used to hate playing against Drogba. Or, you know, and he was the one that always stands out as they'd be like, I hate playing against him. But in the way, I think we're unique in the way that our players must look at the opposition and go, oh, God, 
oh God, I really don't fancy this one because nowhere else in the league do you see that. No, and I think a perfect example later in the in the game where it's just, I think Sanchez putting the pressure on Lamarchon and Adoy when he was at centre-back. And Lamarchon heads a square header Madness. over to Adoy with Sanchez right between them and gives Sanchez an amazing chance. Rico pulled off a, a cracking save, save, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you could just tell he's just got no confidence. He's He's worried about doing the wrong thing. And in the end, because he's got all those different options, he's not confident about any of them. He goes for what he thinks is the low-risk safe option, but he heads it straight to Sanchez. Everything f- seems fearful, though, about the Fulham defence. Even at times in the second half, where United just allowed us to have the ball at the back, they just felt something about it where the, the players don't really want the ball because they're terrified and they just know that that statistic and everyone's looking at that Fulham f- defence and talking about that Fulham defence and... It's just, it's really, really sad to see a play, especially players like Adoy and Tim Ream, who this time last year were at the peak of their powers, were so, so confident. And how that has flipped in 12 months is is something else. I remember Slav saying after the QVR game where Dennis Adoy made that mistake, gave Pavel Vlozek the ball, he said, I ask him to play like that and he makes a mistake it's partly on me. You know, yes, should he be turning there? No, obviously not. Like, But he's like, this is the system I asked him to play. And it, it reminded me, I was watching the Take the Ball, Pass the Ball documentary that The Guardian released about Pep's Barcelona the other week. And they were talking about Victor Valdez. And in his first minute against Real Madrid, he gives the ball away straight to the striker and Real Madrid come in to score. And the next minute, he does exactly the same thing. He gets the ball to feet and he plays the exact same pass. This time it skips a player. Barcelona got the other end and equalised. And the whole thing that was Pep was saying, you give them the ball, you pass them. If they make a mistake, it's on me because I'm asking you to play that way. That's what I want. And Ranieri's at the opposite. He doesn't want any criticism on himself. He doesn't want any criticism to, to come back to his door. Whereas Slav, for all his faults, was happy to say, this is the system I want. These players sometimes make mistakes and that's fine because this is what I want them to play like. And you can see the fear in the eyes of the defence and it, it just makes such poor viewing for, for the fans, for the neutral, for anyone really. I think there's there's something to add there as well when you're talking about systems and Slav. I was thinking about the other day, obviously, we had a similar thing in the championship with flying wing-backs. And one of the main reasons why we could kind of cope with that was the role of Kevin McDonald, who would play that really limited centre role and drop back and support. You know, when when we were with the ball, he was confident with the ball, making lots of passes. But when when people were moving forward, he was there sitting back and helping his defenders. And that's exactly what Seri and Chambers, for all their good qualities, and I thought... No, they had really good patches in the game. I think Seri's really coming into his own recently. You can see them both moving forward and no one's playing that specific role to support the centre-backs on the break. And that's that's why they're getting isolated. And I think you could put you could put the best two centre-backs in the world in that position. If they're getting run at by Martial and Lukaku and Sanchez, they're going to struggle. I think I think you've got to put some blame on, on Ranieri and his system there. Let's move into the second half. And it was 53 minutes when potentially the most controversial moment of the match happened. And it was the substitution of Cyrus Christie for Andre Scherler. Now, I don't think anyone was upset that Andre Scherler was being hauled off. Contrary to Claudio's opinion. <laughs> but one thing that I will say here... 
people were booing that substitution before they knew who was coming off. Agreed. And that's what I didn't like about it. Cyrus Christie was being stripped off and people in the Hammersmith end, and I'm sure it was all around the ground, but that's where I sit, were already starting to... And it could have been... Oh, I'm bringing off Dennis Adoy because Dennis Adoy's got a knock. They had absolutely no idea why Cyrus was coming on. And in the end, the actual decision that Ranieri made to pull uh, an attacking player, whether it was Sherla or anybody, for Cyrus Christie and move to a back five is an abomination of a decision for me. But the one thing that upset me was... At first, people were booing because it was Cyrus Christie. And if you're trying to argue that it wasn't, then then you're wrong. No, I mean, I think there's something important here is that there would have been a lot of people who would have started booing once that substitution board went up. But that doesn't mean that there weren't boos before it happened. And, and it, it's true. The, Cyrus Christie gets the worst. You know, Cyrus Christie is uh, is probably a championship player. He is probably not quite good enough for this level. But also, your fortunes do not rise and fall on the back of whether your right back is slightly above or below standard. And under Slavisa this season, Cyrus Christie did absolutely fine until that weird game where he played him in a five at the back against Arsenal. And we all know, you know what happened there. And we've all spoke for ages about that system. But underneath Slavisa, even at Liverpool away, all those games, Cyrus did absolutely fine. And now under Ranieri, he's been forced to make this weird role. We said it at Palace and we said it a little bit about Fosu Mensa as well, where he'll always check back and, and try and play the safe pass. And it completely damages how one Fulham play, but two, how fullbacks are perceived at Fulham because we expect our fullbacks to bomb on because we've watched two and a half years of them doing it under Slavisa. But Ranieri doesn't want that. It's not what he's asking for. And therefore, Cyrus is stuck between this weird rock and a hard place where his natural thing is to go forward but Ranieri is telling him to check back you can see him on the touchline get back get back get back and it's become this sort of like whirlwind of social media cacophony that so that Cyrus Christie can't get out of and there's a lot of factors at play here but I would suggest strongly that one of them is base racism if Cyrus Christie was white and English he would not get the amount of abuse that he does and the fact that he's black and Irish means a lot of our fans would give him two funerals if they could I'm not 100% sure I fully agree there. So I'm going to put that out there. I think a lot of it is based on bad on bad performances and trying to make a scapegoat. So I'm going to put that out there because I don't agree with that. But I don't also agree that this is how Fulham fans behave. I think Fulham fans are better than just outwardly scapegoating a player like this and booing them before they come on a pitch. And, and we've seen it... Uh, we, we saw it fairly recently where where things got ugly, especially like at the Huddersfield game and people were booing Abubakar Kamara. And we and I almost understood that to a point. People were angry. It was a terrible thing that we that we saw Abubakar do. But just to boo him because, oh, here comes Cyrus Christie. I, I just fully didn't agree with it. And, and I think that this season has been really, really tough for everybody. But let's not boo players before they come on the fucking pitch. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's a it's a strong claim from Jack, but I think I think you're you're right in that he does get more abuse than he should, and it's certainly not it's not going to do him any good if he gets booed before he comes on the pitch. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think he's a Premier League quality footballer. I think he puts in the effort, he puts in the yards. His work rate is actually pretty good. That's, it's just quality. That, that's isn't the thing, really right? There. If it was a player that came on and didn't try and sort of lazed around the pitch a bit. I'd kind of accept it. But if it's a player who's actually working hard, yes, he might not be good enough. That's not really the point. He's going out there and he's putting a shift in every time. And he's not 
it's not like he's there walking about or, or not putting in the shift or, or not putting in the effort. He's always come on and, and given what he can. And if that what he can isn't good enough, then fine. But at the same time, it's not his fault that he's being asked to play. Agreed. I think the only other thing we should probably mention, we're 2-0 down at the time. And you look to your manager, he's making a substitution to try and turn the game around. And he's bringing a defender on. And I think there's a lot of frustration building around Ranieri, which is probably bottling up throughout the game. There's a substitution to bring on a defender when you really want to, you know, try and stat the odds in, in your favour at the other end of the pitch. I can see why the fans would get frustrated about oh, a see, defender coming on. That's, yeah, that's I, fine. I, but, once the substitution was made, I was almost like, oh, flipping out about Claudio. Then, yeah, like lay all seven barrels down at him because it was it was awful and it and from a from a tactical point of view it absolutely ruined any kind of control we had in that game we weren't going to get anything out of that game but Claudio might as well have just brought on a white flag absolutely I mean as as soon as as soon as we moved to that back five and just had Seri and Chris and um sorry Chambers in midfield we lost all control that was always going to happen against Man United's midfield three of um Matic, Herrera and Pogba one of the best midfield like kind of trios in the world and we're playing a midfield two against them like how that's what I just don't understand from Ranieri's tactical decisions how can he think we can have any kind of control on the game and it's all it's all very well putting these attacking players on but if we've got no control over the midfield if we've got as soon as a player like Seri he's got two or three men on him it's impossible for him to actually get the ball forward to these guys it's just bizarre like well, how how we thought moving from a almost a three-man midfield to a two-man midfield when we're 2-0 down. It's just bizarre. I've got no idea what he's trying to do there. Uh, the third goal was a penalty. I mean, some people around me contested that it wasn't the penalty at the time. And um, who was it that went down? It was Juan Mata, felled and, by Maxime Lemarchand. And whilst, you know, Juan Mata, it wasn't a really robust challenge. It was no. enough contact that a professional player is always going to go down in that situation and it was clumsy and it was naive and it was a bit reckless. I thought Rico was a little bit unlucky not to say he got as close as he could, but it's a top class penalty from Pogba. He, yeah. he did his homework, Rico. I think just before on um, Sky, they were just showing where Pogba has put all his penalties and Pogba put them to the right where he scored all his other ones and Rico's Clearly seen that, clearly done his homework, and he's he's unlucky not to save it. But yeah, I think it, it tops off a really miserable miserable performance for Le Marchand. You know, he he had one he he struggled more than any Fulham defender I've seen in a long while. Not a great game for him. Yeah, and I never thought that Le Marchand would be that rattled. He always seemed such a composed defender, whilst I never really thought he was absolute top quality. I just thought he was a bit solid and wouldn't be quite so easily spooked by such good players but he clearly had one of those performances Fulham did actually have a couple of chances to get a consolation Mitrovic were really nice header and it was well saved by De Gea who is some goalkeeper he didn't he didn't get tested that much on Callum Chambers put a real nice volley in loves yeah, a volley now our Cal doesn't he? he does but you can just tell that De Gea is is such a class above um, he did go down a little bit soft though in the uh 
in the first half. And also, can I, there's a few um, Man United accounts on Twitter saying uh, how uh, De Gea, Mitrovic was scared of De Gea. Mitrovic would have David De Gea for breakfast. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't believe Spit that him we... out and move on to Romelu Lukaku next. I enjoyed a tweet I saw that was just like, oh, you know, they're, they're, you know you, De Gea is all well and good until 15 blokes turn up in Slazenger tracksuits at David De Gea's <laughs> door, uh, which I did, which did find me. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a conversation going on among United fans who are like yeah don't mess with De Gea I was like I, I don't think you've got this lads I, I don't think you, you've read this situation correctly if I'm perfectly honest but look it, you know, it was what it was at the end and it was Mitrovic getting frustrated more than anything else I imagine and, and that's how it is when you don't get any sort of service you don't get any sort of belief and your team basically don't create anything for you for 90 minutes it was uh, a Christy cross to him as well so yeah, you know, know. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't put him next time and from the other side, uh, Joe Bryan cross and ended up at the feet of Babel kind of unexpectedly. And I think it sums up our day when he misses from not even a yard out. It's about a millimetre out. It, it, it came at him hard. I didn't think it was that bad a miss. It wasn't yeah. an Aguero miss. No, no, no. I mean, it summed up the game. And like at the end of the day, did it really matter? No. I mean, nah. Yeah. The friends who had De Gea in, the, in goal for fancy were, were happy with that, so... Yeah, give them a clean sheet. Um, the game petered out as as we all expected. Um, let's move on to the elephant in the room with the lineup, which we didn't discuss at the time, and it is Ryan Sessignon, Tom Kearney. There are a lot of fans very, very frustrated that we're not including them, and I think part of the argument is: look, we're going down, and you're you're a bit of a fool if you think anything else i almost admire the optimism of some fans who are looking at the fixture list looking at where we can get these six seven wins and i was up i was that maybe up until last week at selhurst park and now i've just fully thrown in my towel and therefore part of the argument for me is well shouldn't we just be playing Tom Kearney, Ryan Sessegnon, two of the people who are either the future of this club on the pitch or are the future of this club off the pitch, as in they've probably got the highest sell-on value that if we are to compete in the championship, we need them to be as informed so we can sell them for as high a price as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got arguments for both of them. I think we've seen in the last couple of games when Kearney comes on, he, he transforms the game. His ability to bring other players into play is, is second to none. No one else in the in the squad can do it as well. I think he's been wasted out on the right and it's not the best position for him, but I'd much rather see him there than on the bench. Um, and the real issue I have with Sess is I think Ranieri came out and said um, oh, something about um, Sess not playing because he's, he's in poor form. Well, look at Scherler. Scherler's in awful form recently and being slated by everyone. Well, he also said because he, he's not fit, but Scherler had the flu last week. Yeah. It's all a bit weird. It, it reeks of uh, a deeper divide than, than something that's going on on the pitch. And uh, I would suggest that there's something up behind the scenes at the club. Uh, it's the same with Kearney. If he feels like he needs to come out and say things like he did today, where he said he'd like to take the whole whole squad on a team bonding exercise to go go-karting, but he can't. It, it, comes, it all comes across as very weird, very strange. Uh, and I, I think that you know him coming out last week and being like, we're not fighters. We're not built for that. We're built to keep the ball. And we did that in the second half against Brighton. And the response to that was to go back to a five at the back and basically play Kenny out of position. So there's something going on there, I'd imagine. I imagine there's some weird war of attrition between Kenny, Sess, and the manager. And I think that 
the only person that can, can you know can come out of that on top is it, are, are assessing assessing Kenny after uh, in in the long run. I suppose Ranieri is is not going to have control of this squad by this time next season if we're if we get relegated, which looks you know almost inevitable at this point. And if we're not going to get relegated, he needs to do something about it quite quickly, which would I imagine involve playing Tom Kenny and Ryan Sessegnon in their preferred positions. All right. Well. To be honest, it's one of those games, Saturday's game, where I actually don't think that the game was the most interesting part of it for discussion. We were kind of always going to lose. Um, there was some desperate defending. There were some missed chances. But I think about the game itself, we've said everything that we possibly can. However, I think the more interesting debate and the one that is happening amongst many Fulham fans is... Should we change the manager? Is now the right time? So we'll take a little break and we're going to discuss that next. Hello, I'm Lucas Piazon and you're listening to Fulhamish Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Fulhamish Podcast. Sammy James here with George Singer. Hello. And Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. So today we're going to be taking your questions via WhatsApp, uh, which is the new WhatsApp channel that we've set up. Hundreds and hundreds of you are in there um, and we're really enjoying um, the interaction that we're, that we're having from it and in particularly in games um so many of you are kind of responding to us and giving us really good um reactions i i guess throughout the game so i think over the next few weeks we want to try and utilize that more because it's this amazing service this kind of direct connection that we have between you guys who listen and us guys that do the podcast and it it seems even better than, than things like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram in terms of actually getting your immediate reaction. So uh, we're thinking of lots of ways where we can utilise the WhatsApp in the next few weeks. Uh, so one of the first ones we're going to do the questions today and they've all come through via WhatsApp as opposed to Twitter as they normally come through. So we'll do that in just a second. But uh, a talking point now is Ranieri and his future at Fulham and whether we should be sticking with Ranieri at all. I did a video after the game on Saturday, which I didn't expect to fly at all. I just recorded I recorded something for BT Sport because we often do some of the reactions that go on the telly. And I did that and I just felt like I did one of those and I felt like I want to say this as well to Fulhamish. So I recorded a slightly longer one for Fulhamish. And and my main crux of it was it's time to go. As in, I don't really have anything personal against Ranieri and he seems like a nice guy and this is more clinical from my point of view and scientific in the fact that I'm thinking we're going down so Claudio was brought in to try and keep Fulham in the Premier League and I kind of understood it and I kind of bought it when it happened and, and the sense of it but it's clear now that he has failed in that mission and you know, I, I, you could maybe argue that you've got two games against West Ham and Southampton if you've got six points then may just be a small flicker of light but it's still pretty unlikely and so therefore for cloud but in my opinion he's failed and cloud is not the man to get us out the championship next season he just is not he, he i don't think he would want to be there and even if he did want to be there i just don't think he's the answer i think it would almost be another felix maga it would be it'd be a fish out of water if he went down to the second tier so i'm thinking with a two-week international break now is the perfect time to get in a young progressive manager who wants to play football the right way who, and, and I'm not just saying that because, oh, I'm some kind of football purist. I'm more thinking we have the players that want to get the ball on the deck and, and want to adopt a passing style. We don't have big, strong, physical players. So unless you had tied to 
wanted to have an entire clear out and rejig the entire way Fulham's approach to football is done, you need one of those managers. So therefore, I think now is the perfect time to make a change. You give them a few months, they allow them to settle in to life at Fulham, life at Motspur Park, see who's up for contracts, who you see, who wants to take out, see who you want to get in in the summer, rather than try and change someone in the summer when they don't have enough time. Now, I suggested in this video that David Wagner would be the perfect person. And for me, he's left Huddersfield. Yes, Huddersfield have had a terrible season, but this is a man with a proven track record of with limited resources achieving unbelievable results the first was his incredible season getting Huddersfield out of the championship he took a team that was start was that was 17th got them to third barring a very very good seasons from Newcastle and Brighton could have automatic could have got them automatic promotion and then got them through the playoffs by hook or by crook and then kept them in the flipping Premier League with wins over Man United this is a man that knows how to use a limited budget but this season was criminally underfunded and apart from maybe Congolo they barely spent uh, a penny and it seems like he'd kind of run out of his tether towards the end of that so that's my case for David Wagner now George I'll start with you a is it time for Claudio to go in your opinion and b if it is which I'm thinking it probably is who is the man for you that would come in and and do a job so a yes I mean I believe I agree wholeheartedly with everything you've just said I don't think there's anything more I can add to it for for all those reasons I think for me there's three things you're looking for in a new manager or head coach um so firstly someone who's young and will be built into a long-term vision you know we're we're going to go down there's going to be a lot of squad overhaul it's not going to be we've known from last time bouncing back straight away is going to be so difficult we need someone who's in it for a long term and by that I mean kind of two three four year projects so someone who's you know young and and willing to build and grow with Fulham I think the second thing is the style of football so if I think we we need to go back and try and build our identity and I think the the way forward with that is is more Slavs kind of football than than Ranieri's that's you know how the the youngsters we're bringing in are are playing that kind of football and I think that's the way, that's kind of the, the closest thing we have an, an identity to the club at the moment. So so those are the two things. And then thirdly, I think a really important one is someone who's built into the head coach model. So not someone who's going to expect to have the final say on transfers. And that was always, you know, our, our big thing with Slav is that he complained every transfer window that he didn't get what he wanted and we were saying, you know, that's not what you brought in. You're you're a head coach. You're there to coach the players that you're given. And yeah, you have an input into the transfers, but you can't throw your toys out of the pram if your sporting director doesn't pick the players you want. So, you know, with those three in mind, that I'd I wouldn't want any of the classic big names of your Pardews or Allardyces or whatever. I think the the two options are either you look in a lower league, so someone like League One, or you know, there's a couple of teams, Luton, Barnsley, who are doing well there, or you're looking in a broad league or someone I think we could do a lot worse than take a punt on someone like Mikel Arteta who's wanting to prove himself, taking on quite a high coaching role in Man City, playing the right style of football. He'll want to prove himself, knows lots about the English game. There's there's a lot of things going for him. Whether he'd be interested in, in taking on a bigger role, he might just want to stay and work under Pep for a bit longer. But I think Who'd with those things him? in mind, yeah. But actually... I think whilst I'm not massively on board for someone that has no experience, I think Mikel Arteta for me is maybe an exception to the rule because he has so much experience as a number two 
but also does have that experience as a big name player as well. And then for me, anyone that has spent a lot of time under Pep, like like he has, is going to clearly have have some clout and some know how. And maybe his weakness would be, oh, he hasn't got that much experience in the transfer market. But as you're saying, that's not necessarily a, a job requirement. Absolutely. He, you know, if if we are going to that strict kind of head coach um, and sporting director role. I think the amount of responsibility he has is a bit less, which is potentially a good thing. I think if you're going to do that, you also need to question Tony's role in all this. He's overseen some really poor transfer windows. He's overseen some poor managerial um, uh, hires. You know, if if he what you know his his dad always says that he brings people in and holds them accountable for the job that they do. I mean has has tony done good enough to keep his job i think if he if he keeps it you know, I think there's, there's something, I think there's something to be said with Tony is I think it's great to have someone that's clearly got the trust of of the big of the big man and having that kind of eyes and ears on the ground you can't really have too many people better than kind of like you know your own blood your flesh and blood um but it does seem to me that especially if we were able to get back to the Premier League that maybe some more experience in that top level would be really, really, really helpful. Um, Jack, I realise I haven't brought you in on this yet. Um, your thoughts on everything we've kind of said and then moving on to your opinions. I imagine uh, you, you, you don't probably have any ideas of who you'd like to bring in, do you? Me? No, I think you should just leave it. I think one of the old dinosaurs, Allardyce or, you know, one of those lads do the job. No. Yeah. Formations don't really matter, yeah, do they? Yeah, managers don't matter and, and it doesn't matter what time. No, look, look there are, I think it's time for Claudio to go. I think that we've just basically ended up with a PR-friendly Sam Allardyce um, in, in, in many in many regards. That's true. He very much was a man who would pride himself on his man management skills, on his adaptability, on his ability to 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 see a squad work with what it had in front of him and, and get the best out of it. And that's what I said when he came in, that it wouldn't be like it was at Leicester because what he would do is look at the squad and adapt around it. He hasn't done that. He's shown no ability to sort of man manage in what we were saying earlier about Kearney and Essignon. He... Has, it's really getting to you, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty upset <laughs> about it. Um, it. It has shown no real you know, ability to adapt a squad to, to fit the best kind of model that they can be. His his solution to becoming better defensively was adding an extra defender. That's not really that difficult. You know, you or I could have done that. We just stick another defender in and hope that that gets better. I do think that he has qualities and I do think that there are some players who will have learned new things under him, but I think it is time for him to go. Uh, and I would love, love, love for us to bring in someone of the old Cruyffian school. Like, you know, Stavisa was as a massive exponent of that. Uh, I am a firm believer that 4-3-3 is basically the only way to play football. Uh, and that while you can adapt around that and, and occasionally your your 10 drops in and sits along your side, your striker, and, and it looks more like a 4-4-2 or a 4-4-1-1, there is basically one system that that all the greatest teams of all time have basically played. Uh, and anyone who's successful for long periods of time strays away from, you know, the kind of defensive rigidity and actually ends up playing quite free-flowing football. You look at all the teams at the top of all the top divisions and, and very few of them will play a rigid, you know, formation that doesn't really work. You look but at the can likes of- a team on Fulham's resources compete in the Premier League with that formation? Yeah, it's all well and good. What about Wolves? Well, I mean, they... 
are very high in the Premier League and arguably have better players than us. Agreed. And, and they play a they play a kind of 3-5-2, but actually it's the same system because the middle defender always steps out, becomes the base of the midfield and everyone kicks on from there. Then that's how their system works. So it, it, there are ways of doing things, but basically we need someone who's going to learn, relearn the kind of possession traits that kept us dangerous. Ben said it this weekend very, very eloquently on full time. If you go direct and you're a, you're a bad team and you don't keep the ball, the ball comes back at you very, very fast. And that's what happened at the weekend. As soon as we go long, it comes back at us. We can't hold it up. We haven't got the ability to do so. So the way of keeping our defence safe is keeping the ball. Cruyff once said it, the other team can't score when you've got the ball. And, and, and that's the kind of basics. On that kind of thing, I'd like someone like Philip Koku is my kind of first choice. Not not in work at the moment after a difficult spell at Fenerbahce, but the Turkish league is a little bit of a different kettle of fish in terms of management, in terms of how that kind of blood and thunder comes through you. Did really well at PSV. Uh, his kind of managed. I was looking at the people he managed. He played under the other day: Ronald Kerman, Hiddink, Rijkaard, Lorenzo Ferrer, Charlie Rexat, uh, Louis van Gaal, Dick Advocaat. The- these are all managers who have learned from the-, the very top. And he went then and and was part of the kind of La Masia as as a kind of professional getting to the end of his tenure. Helped out with the under 19s Kind of was part of that kind of Pep school coming through. I think we could do a lot worse than bringing in Koku. He's a name as well, you know, one of the one of the great names of that Dutch side. Instant it, respect. Instant respect in the dressing room, instant respect from from players and you know, you look at young Dutch players coming through and I go, I'd want to play for Philip Koku because Philip Koku is one of my heroes growing up or you know, and that kind of thing adds thing. And I think that it would be a more eloquent version of the kind of thing that Reading did with Japstam uh, and the way that they sort of just brought players in because players wanted to play for Japstam. And I think we'd get a similar kind of level of respect with Koku, obviously someone who played for Barcelona for the majority of his career, Netherlands captain, all those kind of things. If that's not option, someone like Oscar Garcia, I think would be a really good fit. He obviously hasn't had a job for a little while. There was that weird spell where he had four games at Watford and then left at the request of the Pozzos and all sorts. But... Mm. Did a really good job at Salzburg uh, and and also at Brighton, if we, if we remember that kind of weird spell. And he, he's a good manager, again, from that kind of Barcelona school where he, he's taught to keep the ball and play possession football. And I think that if we go back to that kind of mould where we, again, look to dominate, we have the players to compete in the championship. And even if we were to lose a core of Mitrovic, Kearney, Sessegnon and Seri, let's say, go, and we don't get any of our loanies back, we'd still have a solid core to work with in the championship. And I think that under the right leadership, we could really look to build on that and challenge again. I mean, um, I spoke to Farrell before we did the pod and uh, he can't make it any more to it. But one name that he suggested to me, which I hadn't considered, and I don't know if he'd be interested in stepping down a level and it'd probably be uh, a red flag to uh, to Mitrovic, is Bilic. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it probably would be. It's not something that I thought about either, but there, there is. I mean, if if Mitrovic is leaving anyway, then it's hardly going to be the you know, the the end or whatever. But I do I mean, think it depends. That, it depends how much Mitrovic really cares about. <laughs> I mean, Englishmen have played for Scotsmen. Yeah, before. of course. I, I, I think that I, I don't think it's that. I think that one he would probably not come down a level because I think that he rates his own managerial skill at slightly higher than actually what it is. Uh, and two, 
I'm not completely sure that his man management skills are that good. I, I was concerned by how a lot of things played out under him at West Ham uh, and the way that it all ended in, in such acrimony and, and sort of deception and people sort of throwing things at each other doesn't sit massively well with me. That said, he was evidently quite successful for a, for a long period of time and, and he does have some sort of now in terms of the game. And that season that I think West Ham reached the FA Cup quarterfinals and Pae was on was on the top of his game. I mean, West Ham were playing some scintillating football that season. They were last, last season at Upton Park as well. I think it was at that time it was a perfect storm of, of you know, the... All the fans were excited for the new adventure, going to the London Stadium. You know, maybe hadn't worked out as well as they'd hoped. And in, in Dimitri Pye, the guy who's creating more chances than anyone in in Europe. And I think they they were pretty reliant on the guy. And as soon as he decided he wanted a, a transfer out, they they fell down a bit. So I don't know. I wouldn't be too happy with with Bilic as manager. I think he's obviously got a lot of experience in managed Croatia for God, God, God knows how many long, years. Yeah. yeah, a long a long time there, but. I think he, he probably was over-reliant on Dimitri Pyatt and they wouldn't be half as good as they were in that one good season he had with them if Pyatt wasn't on, on all firing on, firing on all cylinders. It's interesting, though, to look at the championship and those kind of teams that are really breaking through this season and, and all three of them have got... OK, Bielsa isn't young, but he might as well be in the kind of philosophy he wants to play football in and you look at Daniel Farker you look at Marcelo Bielsa and even Chris Wilder a slightly different kind of manager not the kind of manager that I would necessarily um, want at Fulham but still longevity trusting in managers having an identity is so important in the championship and Absolutely. you look at and you look at Villa who I think whilst they've got really capable players they, they lack that bit of an identity. What a Villa are all about. And, and they struggle and they have inconsistent. And and I think that is so important. And, and trying to get that in place now could be vital for us if we do want to bounce back at the first attempt. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the the identity thing. We bang on about it a lot, but it is so important to a team. And and actually, I was I was reading an article and I posted earlier about an article about Maurizio Sarri at Chelsea and He's struggling heavily, but Chelsea don't have an identity and they have no clear plan for the future. They lack a director of football. They have, you know, Marina in charge there who basically is an oil magnate being shoveled into a role that she doesn't really understand. There are no like plans to merge the academy into the mainstream system. And for that reason, they're losing some of their key talent and they have a loan farm out across the world. They're going to have to fire sale a load of those players because UEFA regulations are going to change. And we knew they were going to change about two years ago. Chelsea did nothing about it. They didn't sell any of those players. And now there's going to have to be a Deadwood sale because they can't do the same thing again. And it's kind of one of those things where you look at the club and you go, what are you? What do you want to be? And Abramovich had such grand visions of becoming this kind of Barcelona-esque of the South and all of those things that didn't really come off because they got a taste of glory in the Champions League and in winning a couple of premierships quite quickly and now nothing else will do so they don't they don't have that scope to do you know two seasons where they come eighth to in order to build some sort of identity and actually now you're starting to see Chelsea fans going I'm not worried about the results. Not enough to be a vocal majority at games. But there's something like, look, let's just breathe, rebuild. We haven't stuck with a manager for over two years, for something like 10 years. You know, we need to have a plan in place and an overarching vision which guides things because that's how managers like Sarri were able to build such like an empire at Napoli because he was able to have the backing. And it's how Pep, Pep came out and said, 
if I didn't have the backing of Chicky and I didn't have the back the backing of all of those players, then I wouldn't have been able to do this at Man City. You know, that first year they finished fourth. They got knocked out in the quarterfinals to Arsenal. They got knocked out in the last 16 to Monaco. They were all games that they expected to win with the players they had and didn't. But they didn't panic and fire Pep. They were just like, right, breathe. Let's get what you need in. Let's work it out. And instead, and now look, they're reaping rewards from it. And Chelsea don't have that kind of model. And we do not want to become a club like that or a club like Leeds who for so long just fired everyone off the cuff as soon as it went wrong for a second. And you need to give type people the time to work their like, influence in the squad and actually build something that's worth viewing. But, and people are going to be listening right now and saying, but hang on, two seconds ago, you were calling to fire a manager. That's because and, Ranieri doesn't have an identity. Yeah, and yes, we are. But the problem is... There's no point going down the road with someone that's got the complete wrong identity for what we're trying to do and probably wouldn't be here by his own accord in three months. We're trying to build some stability, but you're going to have to have some casualties along the way in order to try and get that stability back. And that's why I think a lot of fans are upset that we lost Slavisa, because if we were going to go down then at least we had a bit of an identity under Slavisa and that wouldn't be lost. And then without blowing smoke up your ass, Jack, I thought your tweet on Saturday just summed it up perfectly where you said, I'm jealous of everyone. I'm jealous of Southampton's manager. I'm jealous of Cardiff's spirit. You're jealous to a point of Huddersfield's spirit in the fact that they actually managed to put up a fight against Arsenal. Uh, and then man- but their crowd. Look, Huddersfield are going down and they're on course to set the worst, like one of the worst Premier League records of all time. And their crowd sang for 90 minutes behind them. And whether that's because Huddersfield, you know, don't see themselves as a Premier League club and have seen themselves fighting against the odds or whatever, doesn't matter. This season, Huddersfield have been desperate. They've been diabolical and their crowd has not turned on them. I'm not telling them once, and I think that that's such a like impressive stat, and I'm I'm massively in awe of how much you know, patience they have, but also how much that it's like. Look, we get behind this team, whether they're doing well or they're doing badly, and people, of course, are right to express their criticism. That's completely fine. I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing. What I'm saying is that for 90 minutes, and they'll all moan afterwards about how bad Osfield are and whatever, but for 90 minutes they get behind the side, and I love that. All right, well, let's um, get some questions in before we finish the podcast today. As we said, we're taking these questions on WhatsApp, so get involved. The link is on our Instagram and on our Twitter. Just go on your phone, click on the link, you send a message to us, we send one back, uh, and within 24 hours, you'll start getting some semi-regular messages from from Fulham, which we're very active on a match day. We'll let you know when there's new podcasts. We send messages uh, before and after uh, each game, just with a bit of a roundup of everything good uh, with, with Fulhamish, and also... As we said, we're going to look at ways in the future where we kind of integrate you more and more into the podcast. Consider it like a, an exclusive members club or, or something like that that doesn't sound quite so seedy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is from member number 26. Yeah, that's the only thing. <laughs> have we got names here? No, we, we have no names because it doesn't give you the name of the person that's sending you the message. It just links them all in as numbers because it's a, it's a WhatsApp account. So... This is, I'm afraid, number 26. You'll have to uh, you'll have to let us know who you are. Yeah, maybe that's a thing we didn't think about. So for next time, maybe if you're asking us a question for the pod, put your name on. But anyway, I got this I got this message from 26. <laughs> 26. But also I got it as an email oh, okay. from John Marmora. Oh, okay, there we um, go. So it's, I, I don't think that 26 and John Marmora are the same person. Oh, right. This is okay. interesting. But I, I do know that they both asked the same question. So John put it this way. He said, 
on the next pod, would you boys be able to have a chat about Scott Parker? I live in the States, but used to live in London, had season tickets for most of Scotty's tenure as a player. I always loved him and felt most other fans did as well, but it's clear his popularity has greatly declined as I've seen him take quite a lot of negativity on social media over the last few months. With everyone else, to be fair, John. But I'm looking to you guys to help me understand why no one seems to like him anymore. Is it simply because of the team's decline in play after his arrival as a coach? The kind of question on WhatsApp was, why is there such an anti-Parker bandwagon? Is it just the jinx element? What do we know what he's like as a coach? So, George, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, I mean, great question. So thanks, uh, thanks 26, sending it in. Um, uh, I, I think at this point, he's a, he's a bit of an unknown. Like, we don't know what kind of style of play he wants to play. Obviously, he's worked under, I guess, Ranieri, a bit under Jukanovic and yep. uh, Pochettino as well. So I think he's he's worked under some great coaches and maybe one not so great coach. Um, but at this point, we, we really don't know what style of football he wants to play and what his brand. So in, in that way, it's a bit of an unknown. I'm sure maybe uh, maybe Tony would know a, a bit more about it. But I guess one one thing I'd want to see from a new a new head coach coming in it's one who can really kind of galvanise the crowd and get everyone back on side. And with, unfortunately, with someone like Scott Parker, he joined the club, we got relegated. He played with us in the championship, we nearly got relegated again. He moves away, we get promoted, he comes back, we get relegated. And I don't think, I, I don't think for a second that his fault, that's no, his no, fault. No. But I think he's, uh, through no fault of his own, like that's almost becoming a part of like what he's known for at these bad times at Fulham. So, for better or worse, like, you know, irrespective of how good a coach he is, is he the man to kind of, you know, really galvanise the crowd and really get, get Fulham back on track? I'm not too sure. I think I'm exactly the same. There is a bit of a jinx element and I do just associate him with bad times now. And that's just unfortunate, I think, more than anything. But he just is not the right man now for Fulham. And I mean... I've met Scott and, and Scott's a nice guy and he's a real deep thinker about football and he, and he understands it very, very well. But Scott is not that massive personality on the touchline. And I think at the moment we could also, as much as, as a young progressive manager, we could do with someone with a little bit of charisma as well that can lift this crowd. And I'm just not 100% sure that Scott is that man. I think he's a great thinker. I think he does a lot of his... Th- thinking inwardly I think he's a bit of an introvert and I'm just not 100% sure he's the right man for this situation and I just don't think he's got the experience all right let's keep going this is from number 80 this is hello number t- 80 <laughs> if anyone listens to the Frank Skinner show on absolute radio they do the exact same thing with texters and they read out the last three digits of their number and they always go oh three six five is said so I like that we're doing the same yeah n- number 80 says which youth team prospects do you think could actually do a job regularly in the championship with no loan experience how do you think the likes of Steven Sess Matt Riley, Marlon Fossi, and Luca Della Torre would fare. Sam, you can start. I mean, I'd like to start seeing Stephen Sessignon, and I think that if for any reason Cyrus Christie can't play and you don't want to play Fossi Mensa, I wouldn't mind starting to see a little bit of, of Stephen Sessignon, and I certainly think that could be a, a way forward in the championship next season. Matt O'Reilly looks like he's ready. He really, and, and especially if we're in the championship next season, I would be quite upset. Not necessarily seeing him instantly as like complete first team material, but he needs an extended run of games. Exactly what happened to Sessignon at the beginning of that season. Give him a run out. In that first League Cup game, let's see how he does. And then let's bring him into a couple of league games. And and you never know with young players, they can suddenly just hit the ground like Cess did. He got that goal early on in his, in his time at Fulham and he just flew. 
Let's give someone like Matt O'Reilly that chance. And Luca De La Torre as well. Luca De La Torre was man of the match against Millwall away. And that's a tough place to... Well, you know, OK, it was a bit of a weird atmosphere that last night. But we've seen this season that Millwall aren't that much of a terrible side. You saw them beat Everton a few weeks ago. You were there. And and, Luca, and De La Torre ran the show. So I would be very excited to see those trio of players be given a real, real chance next season. I don't know enough about Fossey, I'm afraid, to really pass comment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to know. Obviously, the only we don't see a lot of these guys. The only, you know, we see snippets of them in the old League Cup game, and even against Millwall, who you know may, maybe didn't even put out their their strongest side at the time. So, you've always got to temper that a bit. I think, you know, clearly when when we go down, there's going to be a lot of rebuilding, and I think we need to we need to expect that we're not going to go straight up. We need to. That's fine. We, as long we as need. We're yeah, building something. Absolutely, and I, and I think we we need to have like a two or three year plan, and I think the young players absolutely play a huge part in that. But we can't chuck them in first game of the season. I mean, when we went down with McGath, you know, he was chucking in. Was it Jesse Yorinen playing first game? And he's and, a keeper, a Finnish keeper, is Jesse Yorinen. Wonderful. Uh, well, Cameron Burgess, another one to consider for next season, um, and I've seen he's playing for the under twenty threes tonight. Um, is Tyo Eden. Yeah, he got recalled from his loan spell at Ipswich, um, but I do con- I am I was quite concerned that Ipswich are bottom of the championship. They're rubbish, and Tyo Eden couldn't get a game. And I think that does say a little bit about maybe him not being quite the player we thought he Places was. Places and situations. I though. agree. I'm not. I'm not writing him off by any stretch of the imagination. I'm I don't just think saying. Fossu think about it. I don't think Fossu Mensah's necessarily going to be having a terrible career because he's had a bad loan spell. He's been at a club which is not firing on all cylinders and he's not been the right pla- he's not been the right man at the right time. Someone I want to see more of and I think is a real talent that no one seems to ever mention is Matthias Kate. Um obviously full Estonian international in fact has five or six goals for Estonia in in about 20 caps plays wide right or through the middle as a 10 uh, did absolute bits for all of the youth squads coming through, still plays quite a lot, I think, the under-23s, uh, and has never really been given a shot, despite the fact that everyone who speaks about him seems to rate him exceptionally highly. And I would really, really like to see him given a shot should we be returned to the Championship. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think we, when we inevitably go down, we just need to find the balance of, you know, if you put a young player in a winning team, they're going to get loads of confidence, they're going to grow really quickly. If you put a young player in a, a team that are, are struggling they're only gonna they're not gonna learn too much they're gonna get you know they're gonna lose confidence so I think that's why is it worth you know playing any of these guys in the Premier League like not really I mean what how much good is it gonna do for a young player to come in to get smashed 3-0 by Man United you know bring them in next year have a good solid core of players and bed them in in games where we think we're gonna do well build up their confidence and give them a couple of years and we could find you know a couple more Ryan Sessegnons okay right this one's from 518 Thoughts on the plethora of tourist fans in the hammy end on Saturday. The game summed up everything I hate about the Premier League. I saw more touts than usual. Half and half scars being flagged out, flogged outside made our impending relegation seem somewhat more bearable, knowing that this will be eradicated in the Championship. George, I'll start with you. You know, I, I, I can see why it it irritates people. With We've spoken about it before. Ticket prices being so high, and when you get... The real fans out there who, you know, like like myself, I'm not a not a season ticket holder. I go to games when I can and I'm getting priced out. You know, I'd love to go and see us go and play Man City, but I think I looked at the prices and it was like 75 quid or something and 
to go and pay 75 quid to watch us get smashed by Man City, that's not an attractive, uh, you know, deal for me. Unless however, you just want to see it from the Man City point of view. Yeah, and then that's exactly what a tourist would come in and see and do. And they can afford to pay that. And if someone like me isn't going to buy a ticket, it's going to come available to someone like them, they're going to buy it. Yeah. Um, so I think it, I think it links with the, the ticket stuff. And yeah, I can, I'm totally on board with the people who get frustrated by it. You lose, you lose atmosphere. You get the, the real fans who can't go watch and instead will go watch it, you know, at home or on a stream or something. Yeah. I can I can totally see why people get frustrated by it. Yeah, it's it's an it's part and parcel. It did feel particularly bad on Saturday. You're in the concourse in the Hammy End as well, and the Hammy End's kind of a place that you do feel like is a real hardcore of Fulham support. And there were so many. I can almost understand if it's a six year old kid, they might just be a Fulham fan and excited and want a scarf. I'm a bit like whatever, but there were like you know, adults with, with half and half scarves kind of everywhere. They were right outside the hammy end as well when, when the game was finishing. I was a bit like, come on, lads. Yeah, all of these top six games are feeling more and more like just tourist traps. And I just really think that our club could just do so much more to promote real fans going to the game. People like George. It's 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 people, it's people like you, George, that I do feel really, really sorry for who would come if that was thirty pounds on Saturday, you would have come. I'm almost certain of it. I'm, I'm speaking 100%. for you, hundred percent. And you know, we look at the Liverpool thing, and I was listening to your discussion last week about it. Why aren't there loyalty points for home games? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't Why are there not loyalty points? Because there are home fans that would have missed out. Like, oh, I would have. I would have loved to go and see Fulham Liverpool. I'm a genuine Fulham supporter. I go quite a lot. I just missed out. Yeah. Why is there not loyalty points for home games? Just even like for a window, you know, if you missed your two days opportunity there, well, then that's your fault. But yeah, if- yeah, of course, just a window. But again, we call them out all the time on this and I don't think anyone cares, but it doesn't get enough abuse as far as I'm concerned on, on, on for all of the things that lie squarely at his door, all the chat that Tony Khan gets on social media, all of the chat that's laid at, you know, at the club in general. No one is calling out the fact that Fulham have a chief revenue officer whose who's, like, business it is to drive money up and he does not care about you as a fan like, let's have this straight all he wants is your money Casper if you're listening to this come and speak to us let's have a conversation and let's drive this because this is nuts it's nuts that you are driving fans away from the club and I refuse to let this happen and just sit by and let it happen any longer and when people are looking at directing that abuse at Tony Khan on, on social media have a look up for our chief revenue officer and maybe direct a few barbs his way instead yeah I'm not going to give you his handle but he's on Twitter yeah I don't think he looks at it very often, though. But he's doing the numbers, Jack, and he's seeing that a tourist that comes, and by tourist, again, we have to put the disclaimer, we mean people that are in London that have no affiliation to Fulham. We're not talking about people across the world who support Fulham. We're massive fans of yours, and we we appreciate you all the time. Yeah, we we met... you know, we've met fans from all across the world that have come over and you're great and you, you're dedicated and, and that's not who we mean here. We mean, yeah, those that kind of casual Premier League fan that just wants to come to go see Man United. But those tourists are spending way more money. They're going into the club shop and they're buying the pin badge or, or all of these things. And, 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 and sadly, George isn't, although he is wearing a beautiful uh, the kind of Harrods green top from 2007-2000 Harrods one the Berdino special yeah it was. to celebrate his retirement and, and it looks absolutely wonderful you're looking yeah, resplendent it's, it's it took me like so. a year to find it it's unbelievable so yeah the tourists shot. are a bit annoying it was particularly annoying on, on Saturday okay last one we've actually got two questions uh, the same and I think the answers are going to be similar so 528 and 350 you've both basically said 
do you guys think loaning out our key players like Mitrovic, Kearney, Seri would be a potential option when we go down so that we'd have a chance to keep them if we came back up first time of asking? I, th- I think you've you've got to think almost a bit logically here and a bit objectively. And at the end of the day, they're, yeah, they're human beings, but they're assets. And if we, we've spent, how much was Mitrovic upwards of, of 20, 25 million? You know, that's that's money that's not doing anything if we loan him out. Like he, he might be gaining you know a, a little bit a little bit more value if he's playing regularly and doing well but we're much more likely to go up if we can reinvest that money I, I guess a lot of it depends on whether we can reinvest it and I think a lot of improvement needs to be made in the recruitment department before I'd feel comfortable that we can reinvest that money in a good way however you know, otherwise that's just money tied up in something that's not giving us any value at all yeah precisely I mean I'd love it in my dream of dreams that some of these players want to do a Gigi Buffon and get us back to the promised land, but it's just not really going to happen. And why would Mitrovic, when his stock is high, not try and get a move to another Premier League club? I don't think it's going to be top six, but I, I, could, I could see West Ham buying him. Or an Everton. Watford, yeah. Yeah. Everton, I think, is a complete case in point. The team's crying out for a striker. I think like Palace could do very well out. I think Palace could do a lot worse than getting Mitrovic. Mishi and Mitro. I don't know if he, if he stays Michi, but yeah, yeah, I think they could do a lot worse than Mitro. Good. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much it from the bag of questions. I have a plug, though, that I need to do, if you don't mind. So. Yeah? Yeah. So basically, Fulham are doing an initiative. The Fulham Foundation at the moment are doing an initiative uh, with a visually impaired program uh, called Metro Blind Sport. And they're working with the foundation uh, and Sense and London Vision to deliver a, a football program in Brixton. Uh, the first taster session is this Thursday. It's six seven. It's free to go to, uh, and then you can look and see if if you like it. If the person likes it, it's for five years plus, um, and it's at Brixton Brixton Recreation Centre on on Brixton Road. It's down there. It's load of the Fulham coaches all there down to sort of help with with doing the scheme, and then from there it's a six or a twelve week booking. You, you look if you enjoyed it and you get involved and you get. Uh, kit you get equipment you get the whole shebang and also after that they take you on a cottage tour and you get to go to a game uh, at the end of it so it's a really cool initiative i'm sort of trying to pass it on to anyone that knows anyone visually impaired that might be interested in the programs for literally all ages uh, and if you want to book it's bit.ly slash fulham football sessions uh, and you or you can just search blind uh, metro blind sports on google and look at their full and foundation program yeah and and if you missed all of that um i'm sure you could also just tweet jack and uh, you, oh absolutely you, you yeah send them in their direction as well all the podcasts whichever which, whichever you like well good stuff jack uh what are you thinking for pod title today i can't get over red dead damnation uh, i think that's absolutely sensational i'm, yeah. I'm buying in fantastic work well thank you for listening today bit of a bumper episode thank you for your questions on whatsapp uh really really appreciate that uh we're going to take uh, a little bit of a break whilst it's the fa cup weekend we haven't got a stat show or anything like that but fulhamish extra will return uh in about 10 days time so it'll be up on the thursday morning maybe even the wednesday night if we get out soon enough uh, looking ahead to probably actually the Wednesday night because it's a Friday, Friday game uh, looking ahead to that West Ham game and also I imagine Dom will secure us a big name interview on the uh, on the Love Sport Radio big names Fulhamish only exclusive yeah. 
on the uh, on the fan show as well so hope you have a, a nice fa cup weekend a weekend off of football and well we might not be enjoying the football but we'll be going to west ham and at least we'll have a good day out in the we'll stadium beers, yeah. exactly uh, so to george singer thank you very much thanks man and to jack collins thank you as ever thank you sammy we've been the fulhamish podcast we'll see you soon have a good weekend come on you guys you right. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. This spooky season, have a listen to Let's Talk About Myths, baby! A podcast about Greek mythology that tells it honestly and often with a lot of gore, at least when it comes to these spooky season episodes. Every week in October, I have released a new episode with various levels of spooky in Greek mythology. There are ancient stories of haunted houses, ghosts, werewolves, general tragedy, and even a very bloody tree. Greek mythology has a little something for everyone, especially when it comes to spooky season. So listen to Let's Talk About Myths, baby, every week, wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-cast. 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 A-cast